All right, this morning we are continuing um, our series called The Life of Paul, and so welcome to Life of Paul, part 14. And actually, my plan is for this to be the last installment of this series for a little while. Um, hmm, I'm glad you said, aw. No one in the first service did that. <laughs> um, so, you are my real people. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so we are going to, uh, we're going to take a, a little break from this series for a little while, and one reason for that is because next week is Easter Sunday, and so I would like to preach on something that matches with that, and so I'm not going to continue preaching about the life of Paul, especially because we are in the section of his life where he is arguing a lot about circumcision, okay? So those of you who are bringing visitors with you next week, you will be glad that I didn't just keep going through the life of Paul, Amen. Yes, so hmm, circumcision on Easter, honey, let's never go back here. Yeah, I agree. So we're trying to avoid that. Um, also, after Easter, I plan to start a new series that will go for maybe seven or eight weeks. And then after that, we'll get back to Life of Paul, um, picking up where we left off probably around mid-June. So for today, let's go ahead and cover one last piece of the Apostle Paul's story before the break. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to begin, uh, I'd like us to finish what we began last week. Um, if you weren't here last week, I'll review just a little bit. In fact, I'll review the whole series very, very quickly. As far as we've talked about so far, the life of Paul, we've talked about this missionary and this apostle in the New Testament, and we talked about his early life, and then we talked about his conversion to Christianity, and then we talked about his early years in ministry, and then we talked about how he ended up in a town called Antioch, and he was a church leader there, and he was a pastor in Antioch, and then from Antioch, he was called to be a missionary by God. And so he goes on this mission trip, and there's this map that we have been using for that. In fact, here's the map. Um, so this is the place where he was church leader, pastor, Antioch. And so he travels on this journey, going through the Mediterranean Sea, uh, evangelizing people on the island of Cyprus, heads up here to Perga, over to these cities over here, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. We learned all of these different stories and the parts of the Bible that explain all this. The reason there it's blue and red is red is the, um, is the trip on the way in, blue is the return trip. They went back to most of the same cities on the way um, as they went back, and then they end back up in Antioch. And this brings us to last week's sermon. There, he's back home, and things are, um, I guess, normal for a while, and, and so time passes, and then eventually false teaching creeps into the church. Okay? False teaching creeps into the Christian church, a kind of which that is like, such a big deal that two things had to happen. Number one, a, an entire book of the Bible had to be written about it, and number two, a meeting had to happen down in Jerusalem um, where all the earliest leaders of Christianity met in order to deal with this controversy. So those are the two things that happened. So as far as the meeting down in Jerusalem goes, I'm going to put that off and we'll talk about that when we get back to Paul's life um, in June, when we restart the series. That's where I think what we're going to start with, if the Lord wills, is that meeting in Jerusalem. But for today, what I'd like to do is finish up the, the other part, which is that there was a book of the Bible that had to be written about it. And so we started talking about that last week. For those of you who were here last week, what book of the Bible had to be written about this topic when it happened? Galatians. Very good. So last week we learned a little bit about the book of Galatians, but we did not really learn like the message of the book, right? I only read to you, I think, seven sentences from the book of Galatians last week. So um, I read to you the book, the, I read to you different sentences from the book that showed like how emotional Paul was as he wrote it. Remember that? But we didn't get into like the main message. We didn't see much of his argument for salvation by faith in Jesus rather than believing in salvation by adherence to laws 
given by God for the Israelites specifically. And that was the false teaching that was, that was creeping into the church. And so that's the thing he's addressing. So today what we're going to do is we're going to do a flyover tour of the book of Galatians, like a survey of all of the book of Galatians. It's not long. It's six chapters. Even that makes it sound long. They're not even normal like book chapters the way we have chapters now. It's one, two, three, four pages. So this was a letter that Paul wrote. And so we're going to learn these four pages. And yet, um, we're not going to learn every word of it. There's a lot in the book of Galatians. Ten years ago, I did a series on the book of Galatians, and it took us 13 weeks to get through it. And so today, we are going to do it in one week, okay? Real fast, we're going to go through um, the, the message of the book of Galatians in, um, in about, I don't know, 30 minutes. So here we go. Galatians, if you have your Bible with you, turn to chapter 1, because that's a good place to start. Galatians chapter 1, and I will read to you starting in verse 6. This is the first paragraph of the main body of the letter. We read it last week. I'm going to reread it, read, read it now just to remind you of what was the issue that was being brought up. Why is Galatians being written? Paul is writing to these Christians who he administered to, and he says to them in the midst of this false teaching, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the gospel about the Messiah. And so he writes this letter to these people that he knows and he hears about from afar. And he says to them, why are you turning away from the gospel that I gave you? You are turning to this other gospel, this other message. And the other gospel was sufficiently different from the gospel that Paul thought it's not the gospel. Like this isn't even the message of Jesus anymore. This isn't by the way that by which you can be saved. And so that's what he addresses in the first chapter. Um, second chapter we've learned actually quite a bit about in this series. So I'm going to go straight to Galatians chapter 3 and see where the argument picks up there. Galatians 3, starting in verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians. And that probably had to sting if you were one of the Galatians. This, is, this guy's your pastor. This guy is your, your former pastor. He is the, the one who led you to Christ, right? He's the missionary that started these churches and told these people about the gospel for the first time. And they are now believing what they believe and they're followers of Jesus because of him. And then they get this follow-up letter and he calls them foolish for what they are now falling into, what they are now believing. You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? He's saying, what, what could have even happened? Like you, you, you believed the right things. Things were going so well. And, it, and I'm just trying to figure out what happened that you are now believing this completely other thing. Who, did someone come and cast a spell on you? What happened? And maybe you've met people like that before where you felt like they believed in Jesus and like you just were such a good Christian and then something happened a little bit later and you're like, whoa, they're so far from where they were. It's like, did someone come and cast a spell? What happened? And so he says, who has hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? He's saying, I, I, you know about Jesus and that he died on the cross for your sins. This was portrayed before your eyes, which is an interesting way to phrase it, right? Before your eyes, Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. You, it's like you saw him crucified. It almost seems like if this were written in a different time period, I'd wonder, like, did he show them like a movie? Like, did he show them the passion of the Christ, right? Because Jesus died, like, before their eyes, was portrayed as crucified. Obviously, the technology did not exist for that. So he must be referring to something like his teaching, right? That the way he taught them, he's going, hey, I showed you this. Like, you saw this. You understood this. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that's the way that you're saved. Not you earning salvation through your works and obeying different laws. I explained that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You know that. You saw that. 
Jesus died for your sins in your place. Later on in the book of Galatians, he even says that Jesus dying on the cross it was the way that, that Jesus took our curse, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin in our place. He continues, still in chapter 3, verse 6, and uh, no, no, let's keep going, the next verse. So that's verse 1, so next verse. He says, I only want to learn this from you. So after he says, I told you about Jesus dying on the cross, he says, I only want to learn this from you, and this is like a re- kind of sarcastic. He doesn't want to learn anything from them. He's, he's asking a rhetorical question, okay? <laughs> he's like, tell me this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He knows the answer to the question. He doesn't actually want to know the real... He, and he knows they know the answer to the question. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, I, just, I want you to think back about when you received the Spirit and you tell me, how did it happen? He's trying to get them to think it through. He's appealing to their own experiences. He's saying, you know that you received the Spirit. He just assumes it, right? Did you receive the Spirit by? He knows that they received the Spirit. Something had happened that gave it away that they knew they really were believers in Jesus Christ and they had the Holy Spirit lived within them. Um, I don't know what it was. Lots of times miraculous things happened, especially in this time period. When you look through the book of Acts, there are times where when a group of people, like kind of a new group of people who hadn't believed in Jesus before, believed in Jesus, there were these miraculous things happening. Speaking in tongues was super common as a way of like the Spirit of God showing like that the Spirit of God has, has fallen upon this group of people, this new group of people. They know Jesus now. And so maybe something like that had happened, but at some point the Galatians knew they had received God's Spirit. And so he's asking them, okay, I want you to remember back to that. I want you to remember when you received the Spirit. What was it that you did? What was it that happened right around that time that's connected to that, that caused that? What was it? Was it that you all got circumcised and you started following all the Jewish laws in the Old Testament and you became good little Hebrew boys and girls? Is that what caused you to receive the Spirit of God? To which they would have said, well, no, of course not. We didn't even consider any of that until later when the false teachers showed up. Well, then what was that? What was what was the thing that happened when you received the Spirit of God? Oh, it was when we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and we believed. We believed in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Yeah, because that's the point. That's, that's how you know you're saved. That's what saves you, faith in Christ. You know that because the Spirit came into your life and that wasn't why. It's because you believed in Jesus. So he's appealing to their own experience and explaining it to them. He continues on. This is the same chapter, chapter 3, verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. So now he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's making an argument from the Old Testament and he's saying, Abraham believed God. This is what the Old Testament says. He believed God and it was credited to him as, credited him for, him for righteousness. He's saying, that's what the Old Testament says. How did, how did, Abraham, how was he righteous? Because he was so righteous and he was perfect and he did did everything right? No, righteousness was credited to him. Why? Because of his faith. Because he believed God. That's what the Old Testament says. And so these people in Galatia who probably were very interested in being Abraham's sons, I would imagine that the false teachers probably came in and said, like, you need to become Jewish people. You need to be the sons of Abraham and be accepted by God through following the covenant and doing all of the works and earning your salvation that way. That's what you need to be. And then Jesus will accept you. You need to be Abraham's sons. I could imagine maybe they said something like that. And Paul is saying, oh, you want to know how you become Abraham's sons? You do what Abraham did. You believe. That's, what, that's how he became righteous. He trusted in God. And you need to understand the people who have faith, those are Abraham's sons. So um, he goes on, same chapter, we'll move to the end of it now, chapter 
or middle of it, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, brothers, and let me stop there because that's very nice, brothers, <laughs> like they've already gotten a promotion, did you notice? They've moved from foolish and hypnotized to brothers in 14 verses, so that's very nice. <laughs> okay, he's, he's being, <laughs> I think, kind here, right? My brothers, I love you. And I'm using a human illustration. And here's the human illustration he uses. He says, no one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. And I think what he's saying here is he's just saying, this is how it works in our normal life. And it sounds to me a lot like how it works nowadays. It seems like what they did back then must be pretty similar to what we do now. Because in our day and age, human covenants, like when you have a contract with somebody, you don't, make, you don't set it aside or make additions after it's been ratified. You know this in your own life, right? If you've ever signed a lease agreement or if you've signed really any contract at all, isn't it true that you sign it and they sign it and at that point, it becomes legal. It's the thing that governs the situation. It's that this is the rules now. This is what we all agreed to. You can't add a paragraph in later. Somebody can't come along and change the price after everybody signed it. Somebody can't come along and go, oh, here's a, here's a whole different setup and you can't slip in another page. And so apparently that's how it was back then. He's saying, this is just how it is. So imagine how God's covenants must be. Imagine how God's promises and his agreements must be. Because even humans don't slip in stuff after it's been ratified. Now, that's going to matter a lot in just a minute, but let's keep going. So next verse, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. Meaning, this covenant that was made, right? the, the, the promises, this is what I will do, this, like God promising that he will give Abraham an inheritance, the fact that he would consider Abraham to be righteous, that he would have a right relationship with Abraham and would bless him. Right? These promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. So he's trying to make the point here that Abra the promises were made for Abraham and the, the inheritance goes to his seed, which is Christ, is what he's saying. And so if you want to be someone who receives the inheritance that Abraham was promised, if you want to receive, receive if you want to be righteous and right with God and receive the blessings of being in the, you know, the right people with Abraham, it's, it's Abraham and his seed, Christ, so you need to be in Christ. If you want to be part of the salvation, part of the inheritance, part of the blessing that goes back to the Old Testament from Abraham, that was promised to Abraham, you need to be in Christ. You need to be united to Christ. Those are the people who receive this inheritance. You need to be on his side and his team. And so once he's established that, now he says the next thing, and I think it's, it's real simple. It's real logical. makes sense. So he just said, humans don't add extra stuff in after they make their covenants. He says, this promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And now look at verse 17. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, this would be during the time of Moses, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. Right? If you, you don't even do that with human contracts. You don't even do that with human covenants. So of course not, right? The law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and canceled the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, then it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Do you get what he's saying there? Like he's saying, if God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be your God, if he makes this promise to Abraham... Right? And that's it. It's ratified. God says it. This is what I will do. Then you can't say, well, now we've got to obey all these laws in order for God to keep his promise. The laws didn't even come until over four centuries later. God's not going to slip in an extra page 
to the, like in the document after it's all been settled. No, the inheritance comes from the promise, and the promise was made centuries before the law was even given. So it can't be that obeying the laws is the way to be saved. They weren't even around at the time all this was settled. Does that make sense? Like this is just very normal, very, very logical argument here. So let's keep going. We're going through the book of Galatians, so let's, that's chapter 3. Let's go over to chapter 4 now. What's he say in chapter 4? Let's go to verse 8. As he's continuing to, to explain this to the people, he says in verse 8, he says, But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. I think what he's saying here is, before you came to know Jesus, right? In the past, before you were Christians, you didn't know God. You were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. I think probably the majority of the Galatians had been pagans before they were Christians. They probably worshipped like Greek and Roman gods, and they were enslaved to them. They would do ceremonies and rituals in order to get the gods to accept them. That before they knew the true God, they were living their lives, trying to follow the rules and do the right things that they believed pleased the gods and would make the gods require of them. And they'd go down to the pagan temple and they'd sacrifice the thing or they'd give the money that they were supposed to give or they'd follow the special season or the special holiday or special whatever and do whatever it is to, to please the God of the harvest or to please the God of war or to please the goddess of love or whatever it is. But we got to get the gods on our side and we have to do whatever ceremonies and rituals and whatever the rules are in order... And we were enslaved to these gods who are not gods. And he's saying, that's what it was like before. And then you came to know the true God who loves you and accepts you by grace. And you're not enslaved by having to do all the right rituals in order for him to love you and save you. And so he says, so that's what it was like. And then you, you came to know Jesus. Look at this, verse, now, verse 9. But now, now that you know Jesus, since you have become, sorry, since you know God, or rather, have become known by God, even better, right? Now that God knows you, instead of being enslaved and having to do all of these things required by the gods, look, he says, no, now you've become known by God. And he asks the question, how can you turn back again? How can you go back to that? How can you turn back to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You observe special days, months, seasons, and years. That's what makes me think it's religious ritual stuff. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. And so I don't have time to explain all of this stuff here because we're kind of going through the book quickly, so we'll have to get to elemental forces some other time. But I think what he's, in short, saying here is, before you knew Jesus, you were pagans, enslaved by the demands of all the gods, and then you became Christians, and you understand grace and the true God and how wonderful that is. Why in the world are you now going back to, and I think this is what he's saying, basically you're now going to a Jewish version of paganism. I mean, yeah, the name that you give the God is different, and the, and the rules you follow are different now because it's circumcision and Passover and what have you. But basically, you've gone from this grace and I know the true God to sort of a Jewish version of paganism. Why would you, why would you go back to that slavery? That you were, that, that's the kind of religion, that's the kind of thing you were saved from. So that's chapter, I mean, that's, that's a little section of chapter 4. Let's kind of move on. Chapter 5, there's real strong language in chapter 5. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, he says, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm them and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You, you've been freed. Jesus came and died on the cross so you'd be freed from that kind of religion, that kind of way of relating to God. So stand firm in what I taught you, right? And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't enslave yourself back into that law again. 
Verse 2, take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Right? We looked at that last week, that verse. Let's keep reading. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Don't think that you can just do that one thing and go, bah, 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 now I'm Jewish and I've completed all righteousness. Like, no, there are a whole bunch more laws after that one. If you're going to try to earn your salvation by following all the laws in the Old Testament, you're going to need to follow every one of those babies. So, verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Like, that's just a whole other system. This, I'll do all the right things for God to love me. That's not even the, the gospel of Jesus that I taught you about. That's a whole other thing. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. That's the point. It's not about you doing all this stuff. It is about you trusting in him. Faith working through love. You are not bound to the law. That is not how you relate to God. You, you trust in him like Abraham did. And faith works through love. Faith working through love. And, and at this point of the book of Galatians. We are now like four and a half chapters in, approximately. And at this point of the book of Galatians, it almost seems like the law accomplishes nothing for Christians. Okay? Like that there's no purpose of the law for Christians now. Like at, at this point, if you just stopped four and a half chapters in, it looks like almost like law bad, don't you know, follow it, that's it's slavery, and don't go back into it. You don't need to follow any of God's laws. You've got to get rid of all that. It almost seems like at this point, if you don't keep reading, it almost seems like sin isn't like a thing for Christians. Right? Once you become a Christian, you are no longer under law. You've been forgiven. And there is no, like, almost like there's no way to even, like, to, to dishonor God now because the law is gone. You're not even obligated to obey it. It's gone, right? Sin isn't a thing for Christians. That seems to be what he's saying at this point, almost, right? In fact, that's probably what I would think he was saying if I didn't keep reading. That he's saying, hey, you're, he says, you're not under the law anymore. And so if you think about this, uh, this is philosophical, but it's not very deep. I think you'll get it. <laughs> if there are no laws... There are no crimes, right? If there are no laws, there are no crimes. So if we're not under law, then, there's no, then there is no sin, right, in God's eyes. How could there be? Like, imagine a world where there's no speed limits, okay? Imagine if this country got rid of all of the speed limit signs and all of the laws that say, you know, that you got to do a certain speed on the road, okay? Just imagine this world, okay? They got rid of all the speed limits in the whole country, which I know some of you are even just thinking it. You go, oh, what a wonderful world. <laughs> and then some of you would be like too scared to leave your house. Um, and we all have different personalities and that's fine. But anyway, imagine all the speed limits are gone. In that, in that country, here's the question. Would it be possible to speed? Like, could you break the speed limit? No. So if, we are, if the law is the slavery that we get rid of, if we are no longer under the law, it almost seems like, well, that sin's not even a thing anymore. And so maybe you've met Christians, like there are people who claim to be Christians and they talk like this and they act like this. Have you, have you met them? Where they say, well, I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter what I do anymore. Like it doesn't matter what I do. God loves me and I'll do whatever I want. God forgives me. And, and um, if you were to say to them like, whoa, 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 you just did something like wrong. 
You know, and he might go, who says? Well, the Bible says. Yeah, the same Bible says I am not under the law. It doesn't matter what I do. Have you met these people? Yeah, it's real. So as I thought about it, I, I, it almost seems to me like they read four and a half chapters of Galatians and then got like so excited that they didn't finish reading and they just like, they just went and partied and did a bunch of cocaine or something. They never got, they never did the second half of chapter five and six. So I think before we go nuts, maybe we, let's just keep reading chapter five, see if there's any surprises. All right. So we keep reading. And if we go to chapter five, verse 13, this is after Christ has liberated us to be free. So stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, he says again, for you were called to be free. That matches what he'd said earlier. You're free from the law. You were called to be free. You were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, now that's weird because you just told me I'm free and then following I'm free is a don't. But if I'm free, doesn't that mean there's no more don'ts, right? And if free is like I do whatever I want, but you say I'm free and then say, don't, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love and serve one another through love is an ought to. So I'm free, but then there's immediately a don't and an ought to. Hmm. What kind of freedom is this? So we keep reading. Verse uh, 14, the, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Now he brings up this word law and seems to act like it's a good idea for us to follow it. We should follow this law, love your neighbor as yourself. Thought it was free from the law, but now there's this love your neighbor as yourself seems to be what we ought to do. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. That seems like more don'ts and it seems to be saying that there are certain sins that are bad for us. Let's keep reading. Verse uh, 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit. That's another ought to. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's another don't. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. This is a very interesting verse that I feel like we could probably talk about a lot more some other time. But it seems like Christians perhaps are the only people that like they never really get to do what they want. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Christians don't get to do what they want because you have this flesh that has particular desires and then you have the spirit of God that lives in you that's guiding you in a particular way and whichever way you go, you're kind of doing something you sort of don't want to do, right? Because when you do the wrong thing, and many of you have experienced this, you do the wrong thing and then you go, oh, I don't want to keep doing this. Have you ever been in a situation where once you became a Christian and then you do wrong things and now you feel bad and there's shame and you go, I want to stop doing that, right? I keep doing what I don't want to do. But then the reverse is sometimes true, right? Sometimes we do what the Spirit wants us to do, but our flesh doesn't want to do it. And we're like, I want to please God, but like, I don't want to do it, right? But, I, but it's the right thing and I, and I do want to do it, but I kind of don't want to do it. Have you ever been there? And that's because we have the flesh and we have the spirit like battling it out. It kind of stinks, but I mean, I guess if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, I guess I, I, guess I should let you know the bad and the good. So, so now you know, before you sign up, like it's a struggle forever until you die, okay? And then one day, no more old flesh. Then it's just, you live by the spirit and, and you have a new body and there's no more struggle. But between now and then, there's this kind of never, we're never fully doing what we want to do because there's a spirit in the flesh within us. There's so much more to say, but let's keep going. 
And if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay? Sorry, can you go back up? So again, this is that you are not under the law, right? So the reason we're supposed to do the right thing isn't because we're, we're obligated to these laws, but we're being led by the Spirit. And then, you can go ahead and put it up now, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. So we just talked about flesh and Spirit, right? What do we want to do, but then what do we want to do now that we, God lives in us? Now the works of the flesh are obvious. And then what does he do? He gives them a list of about, I think it's 16 sins. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And you'd think, based on the rest of the book of Galatians at this point, he would say, and that, that's a list of 16 things that you don't need to worry about anymore, right? Because you are not under law. But he doesn't. He lists these 16 sins and then says, I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wait, so there are, really are, like, for Christians, there's like 16 sins? Oh, yeah, even more. Look, look, it's uh, look, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Oh, man, it's not even an exhaustive list. It's 16 plus other stuff, right? And will not inherit the kingdom of God. So wait, so I'm free from the law and I don't have to be enslaved to it because God accepts me separate from, my, from obeying the laws? Yes. And yet there's a list of things that if I do them and I practice them, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah, this is what we're getting out of Galatians 5. Let's keep reading because these are all like kind of don'ts and then we move into more ought to's because this is the works of the flesh, but then there's that other thing we talked about, the spirit who lives inside you and what happens if you follow the spirit? Look at verse um, 22. This is the next verse. So this is another list, and it's in contrast to strife, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, promiscuity, all the stuff he had just said. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. He follows the list of don'ts with a list of ought to's, and they're not even just ought to's. They're like, this is what the Spirit will do in you. The product of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit living in you is what you're, you're going to have what coming out of you is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. And even the fact that just self-control is in there seems to imply it's not a do whatever you want, right? You don't need self-control when you do whatever you want. Against such things there is no law. He keeps going, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's not what I want to do anymore, not that other list, No. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. Yeah, second list. That's what I want my life to be. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Three more don'ts. And then the very next verse, there's a chapter break, but it's the very next thing he said. The very next verse, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, mm, they're brothers again, brothers, if someone is caught in any, what's the word? Wrongdoing. If anyone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. So whatever it means that I'm free from the law, and clearly it means that there's, my salvation is not dependent on my ability to follow all the rules, it doesn't mean that there's no such thing as sin anymore, right? Because he tells the Galatians, hey, it's possible for one of you to get caught in a a wrongdoing, like you could still do something wrong. And in fact, the people who catch the person are supposed to help them and restore them. 
and watch out that they don't do the wrong thing themselves. So we're free from the law and we're saved through, like by grace through faith and we're supposed to make sure that there's certain things we don't do. This is kind of confusing, isn't it? That we look through this passage we go, well, we, well, I think I understand what Galatians is saying. I'm not saved by my behavior and my ability to earn it before God and yet I'm a Christian now and there are all these oughts and, not, and ought not tos related to the fact that the Spirit of God lives in me. And so there are things that are forbidden and there are things that are assumed to be sins. And so how does all that work together? And so I wrote a series of questions and answers that I'm hoping will help us think through this topic. Um, it's basically like a little skit that I wrote. Um, I say skit, that makes it sound funny. It's just like a dialogue. A dialogue between a newer Christian and an older Christian. Okay? And the newer, like more immature Christian is the one asking the questions, and the older Christian is the one answering the questions. And here it is. Question. Is it possible to be a Christian and be not under law and still somehow sin? Answer. Yes. That's what I get out of the book of Galatians. Okay, question. So then there are rules and standards that the people of God ought to go by. Answer, yes. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There were rules and standards that the people of God ought to go by. Okay, question. So, are God's people saved by following the rules? Answer, no. I think Galatians is clear on that. Okay, question. Then why would we obey them? Why would we obey these rules that don't save us? Answer, because you love him? Because he died for you? Because you trust him and you want to please him? Because the spirit of God is in you and guiding you in that direction anyway? And because sin will hurt you? Oh. <laughs> Tim Keller is a pastor in uh, Manhattan and he has a quote that's pretty well known at least it's, what he, it's, well, it's associated with him I feel like I've heard him or seen him say it like a zillion times and I don't have a better way to say it so I'm just going to quote it he says something along these lines he says for most religions the way they work is I obey therefore I am accepted and that only Christianity is I am accepted therefore I obey. Okay, question. So are we declared righteous and good with God based on obeying his rules? Answer, no. Question, okay, but that is how it worked in the Old Testament, right? Like Old Testament's by law, New Testament's by grace, right? Old Testament, the way you got God to like you is you had to follow all the rules just right, but now it's like, you know, kinder, gentler God and Jesus and he died on the cross for our sins and he forgives us. But I'm at least right that like, this whole earn your salvation, that, that's the way it worked in the Old Testament, right? Answer, no. Salvation was by grace back then too. And it was always through faith. Obeying the law didn't save the Old Testament people either. And that's why the part of Galatians about how Abraham was declared righteous by faith and he was blessed for over 400 years before the law was given. Like, that's why that part of Galatians is very important. Now, I, I will admit, there is a sense in which 
there was a covenant of law in the Old Testament, and you can kind of find it in the New Testament too now that I think about it, sort of the setup of follow these rules and God will bless you and he will like you and accept you and, you know, and all of that if you follow these rules. But here's the thing. No one obeyed it perfectly other than Jesus and no one was eternally saved by following those laws. Like anyone who has ever been saved has been saved by God's grace. Okay, question. So, salvation is by grace, not earning it, and that was true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes. Okay, so now that I know God, I will want to please Him. If I have faith in Him, I will live differently because the Spirit of God lives in me. Answer? Yes. Question. And if I don't live for him, and if I never follow the Spirit, I should think that maybe I don't have the Spirit, and I'm not a part of God's kingdom. Answer? Yes. And so I hope that series of questions and answers clears up a lot of confusion on this topic, because it's really important to know that. Like, that's really foundational stuff as we understand how we relate to God. Um, and there's, this, there's a little part of me that almost just would love to end the sermon right here. Just like, hmm, feels like just a great time to land the plane. Except, I feel like there is one gigantic question that still remains unanswered that's very related to the book of Galatians. And that is, in the book of Galatians, you have, like, okay, we're not saved by law, but then you do have these laws, and then there are some of them from the Old Testament, like, don't be involved in drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or hatred or whatever, that he seems to continue on expecting of the people. But then other ones like circumcision, that he's like, you don't need to do that. And so the, the question I feel like we need to address before we're done with this book is, which laws are for Christians nowadays? Does that make sense? Like if the Old Testament has laws and we go, well, some of them don't count anymore, and we say, but some of them do, then which laws are for Christians nowadays? Does that, does that question make sense to you? Can you see how it's a really important one? And in fact, I think I could probably do a whole sermon just answering that question. Like easily, we could do a half hour just explaining the answer to that question. But I don't have time this morning to do another half hour sermon at the end of this already half hour sermon. So I'm going to try to just answer the question quickly. This will be not a long, exhaustive answer. It'll be like five minutes, but I'm hoping it will be enough to at least get you started in thinking in the right direction about this. So let me frame the question this way. Which laws are for Christians nowadays? It seems like it couldn't, the answer couldn't possibly be all of them, and it seems like the answer couldn't possibly be none of them. The reason it couldn't be all of them is because we read books like Galatians and we see him saying, you don't need to be circumcised, right? He's telling them not even to do it. And there's other laws that are like that too. Sacrificing sheep in the Old Testament, right? We don't sacrifice sheep for the forgiveness of sins, even though the Old Testament told them to do it. But nowadays, we do not do that, Right? Um, the prohibitions on like food, not eating, um, you know, shellfish and shrimp and pork and all that stuff. We look at the, those are commands in the Old Testament. We look in the New Testament and go, wow, are we still supposed to be going by that? No, the New Testament specifically says you don't even need to go by that anymore. Okay, so we go, well, then it can't be that every single law from the Old Testament carries over. And we might go, well, maybe none of them do. Maybe that's the whole under the law thing. We're not under the law. Yeah, except the Old Testament is where we see thou shalt not murder. Is anyone willing to go like, oh, no, that's just, an, that's just Old Testament when back, back when God was like, did want people to murder? You know what I mean? 
No, that's a, that's a law for now, isn't it? And, and the, like so much of our morality, like stealing and, and lying and like the prohibitions against those things, that's all rooted in the Old Testament. So like I said, a whole sermon could be preached on this, but somehow we got to get with the, what, is the, what is the stuff that carries over and what is not. And so I want to give you, the quick answer is going to involve me explaining three words to you very quickly. Um, and so these are the three words. They're going to come up on the screen. The words are ceremonial, civil, and moral. Um, I did not make up these words. These categories of thinking about God's law were, have, theologians have been using these terms for or something similar to them for, I would think, at least 400 years. Um, some of them probably go back farther than that. Um, so these are not, I don't have a Bible verse that categorizes this way, but I'm just saying th- people, as they've read the Bible, have looked at God's law and noticed different uses of the law, different purposes for laws. And so they go back and say, in the Old Testament, we see ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. And so I'll explain them very quickly to you. Ceremonial law would be ceremonies in the Old Testament, rituals that were done in ancient Israel to point forward to Jesus Christ and the salvation that was to come. Slaughtering a sheep for the forgiveness of your sins is a really good example of ceremonial law. So we have these ceremonial laws that then we no longer follow now that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and has fulfilled the need for the ceremonial law. In fact, not only do we not have to do them, in some ways it looks like some of these ceremonial laws, it's not just you don't have to do them anymore, like you shouldn't do them anymore, right? Jesus died on the cross, like this idea that I'm going to obey the Old Testament and I'm going to slaughter sheep for the forgiveness of my sins, nowadays that seems like that would be a slap in the face to God living your life as if Jesus did not die on the cross for your sins and as if that wasn't enough and you have to still keep doing sacrifices? No. So not only is it you don't have to, there's a lot of these you're not even supposed to anymore because we're in a whole new world now. Jesus has come. The second category is civil law. Civil law would be like the governmental policies for the people of ancient Israel in their nation. They had all sorts of things that they were given to follow, just like we have civil law in our country sorts of things that they were told. It's just like, this is inheritance law, and this is what happens when this person dies, and who gets the land, and this is the border between, you know, the land of Judah and the whatever. This is where the tribe of Benjamin lives, and this is how you handle, you know, whatever, this or that. The judges that were in Israel were supposed to be informed by and make decisions about who was right and wrong based on things that the law had said about this is how we handle this, and this is the taxes that are to be paid, and this is the way you calculate the taxes that are to be paid. Or, um, if someone, let's say somebody stole someone from their neighbor. Let's say there's, in fact, I think this is either Exodus or Leviticus. If you steal a sheep from your neighbor, and then at the time you get caught, the sheep is no longer alive, okay? I guess you ate it, right? So, sheep is, so you can't just give the sheep back. Sheep's dead, okay? Sheep was dinner, like back on Tuesday, and now you're caught, okay? What is supposed to happen? According to the law, the person who stole was supposed to give four sheep, to the person they stole from. That's the, that was the restitution rate for sheep. And so the judges in Israel were supposed to use that as the way that they decided how they were handling cases. Are we supposed to follow ancient Israelite civil law in our country when it comes to taxes and inheritance and how we handle these things? And I think it's obvious that the answer is no. We have our own civil law. That if one of us gets caught shoplifting, we don't go to Leviticus to figure out what to do. Like the, the, there, there are laws where the state of Florida says, this is what happens in that case. That we live in a country with civil laws that we follow. You know, many of which of theirs wouldn't even apply now. Okay? And then the third category is moral law. Moral law would be the things that God has required of people on this earth that reflect his heart. That reflect his heart for all people, all generations, all the time. The, like, I made people and I don't want them to kill each other unjustly, right? The, not lying and not stealing would fall under the moral law. Honoring your parents, 
or even prohibitions in the Old Testament about things like greed and gossip and jealousy and hatred and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. That it's God's unchanging character throughout all time. And you go, well, how do you know what that is? And I would say, this is not foolproof, but for the most part, it's kind of, I think, fairly easy to figure out what the moral law is because most of it is repeated in the New Testament. I haven't counted up all the laws and done the math, but I would guess probably about 98% of the moral law is repeated in the New Testament. It's not like don't steal is only in the Old Testament. Like the New Testament, when, when Christians got gathered together and they were no longer under the law, you still have people like Paul saying that the thief should steal no longer. So the moral laws are repeated in the New Testament to Christians who maybe didn't even have copies of their Old Testament, but they were not supposed to steal. And so the moral law is, for the most part, repeated in the New Testament, and we can know what God's unchanging heart is because it was said all over again to people after the time of Jesus. The reason I say 98% is because I don't think it's foolproof. Like, I don't think it's, like, like here's an example. Um, a human uh, having a sexual relationship with an animal is something that was forbidden in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the New Testament. But I don't know anyone who says like, oh, that was just Old Testament when God was interested in that, right? Like, no. Like, I, every Christian I know goes like, no, that's moral. Like, I don't know how I know. I just know that that's moral. I know that that's like humans with humans, animals with animals. Like, that's just something I know has got to be the heart of God for all time. And, and if you think that, I agree with you. But I'm saying for the most part, the moral law is repeated all over the New Testament. And so as we think of the laws in this way, to me, I think this is a very helpful way to look at it. It seems to me that these first two types of laws do not apply to Christians nowadays. This third type of law does apply to Christians nowadays, but it is not given to us for the earning of our salvation. You following me? This is such important stuff. I feel like some of the stuff we just talked about today is just so huge, Christianity 101, foundational, important for you to know, important for you to remember, important to inform the conversations you have with people outside the faith. This is huge stuff. And let me go ahead and end now by just, I'm going to end the way Galatians ends. So we did all the way to chapter 6, verse 1. So let's go ahead and end. I'll just read you the last two paragraphs of chapter 6, and that'll be how we end. Um, this is how Paul ends the letter to the Galatians. Galatians 6, starting in verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Remember how I said that last week? He probably wrote this with real big letters. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It sounds like something was going on back then that if like, well, if you got circumcised, you'd be considered Jewish and maybe you wouldn't get the persecutions that would come to like regular Christians. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, right? Nobody follows all the laws. However, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. His death on the cross for me, that's how I am saved and made right with God. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. That I am a new creature in Christ by the power of His Spirit. May peace come to all those who follow this standard. And mercy to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Jesus. That's interesting. Do you remember a few weeks ago when he was in Lystra? We talked about Paul in Lystra and they, they stoned him almost to death. Like 
That, that could very well be the scars he's writing about right here. Let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Jesus. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So that was a summary of the book of Galatians. Let's pray. God, on behalf of this congregation, we, we praise you and we thank you for your revelation to us and your grace and the way you relate to us in such a way that we, we can know you without simply being crushed by you in the midst of our sin. But we can have a right relationship with you, the requirements of which were met by you. So we praise you and we thank you for that. I pray that you would give us discernment as we try to figure out what is ceremonial law, what is civil law, what is moral law, what does God require for all people of all time, how did he make the world, and what does he want us to do. I pray you'd give us discernment and wisdom as we try to weigh all that out. I pray you'd help us to live lives that are motivated by your grace rather than thinking law-keeping is the way we, we get you to like us. And so I pray you would help us to be people who live our lives because of your grace and because you've accepted us and because you love us. And there's no earning. You're our, you're our Father. And yet I pray you, wouldn't, you would help us not to be people who use our freedom for the flesh and go, well, that doesn't matter. I live however I want. As if what is reflected from your heart to this world doesn't matter. And so I just pray you'd help us to be people who understand your law and what it, is that is that we are, what it is that we ought to do, but also be people who understand how it is we relate to you, that we would follow you and do what you want us to do, but for the right reasons. So I just ask, I ask for your grace and your spirit upon us until we're face to face. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.